This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I know we're not really doing true crime news, but I always think of sort of this case this time of year. Did you see that a little earlier in the year, they put the John Benet Ramsey case back in the news and people started speculating that they had some persons of interest? I did see that. Did it end up going anywhere? I don't know yet. I was, I you know... I keep threatening to cover that case, and then we never really do. We talked about it a little bit. Yeah, we talked about it here and there. I I just, they're still looking for, according to the police, suspects and witnesses. So they have apparently gone through a couple of different levels of DNA analysis. And I think they've maybe gone back to the drawing board on that case. But I actually saw it. Like sometime earlier this year, it was on like Twitter that somebody was sharing that they were going to be naming some persons of interest or something, but I've never really seen much come out of it. And I didn't know if you had any opinions as to that. Well, did they name somebody? I haven't seen anyone named. No. Well, I mean, if we go back, I don't really know how far you want to get into this, but if you go back to like the sort of basics of uh, the case, right? Yeah. You've got a little girl who is found who is reported missing by her parents shortly before she's found uh, deceased in the basement of the home that she lived in with her parents, right? Yeah. Now, if you think about just sort of those dynamics and you know, pretend for a second it's not John Benet Ramsey, right? Um, because You know, that case is one of the biggest cases of probably all time. Would you you say? I mean, it's made its, like, I hate to to talk about true crime cases this way, but it has made its ways into the Hall of Fame echelon of cases that are the most talked about. Right. And so what is it about her case that would have made it, you know, catapulted it into this... Uh, Hall of Fame echelon. 
It's the fact that she's a young girl who was reported missing by her parents shortly before she was found deceased in her basement, right? Well, it's that, but there's all these crazy elements to it, like the ransom note and the fact that she was like a beauty pageant girl. So there's all these pictures of her. And then there's the creepy people in the parents' lives. And then there's the huge aspect of it where people accuse the brother. There's so many things going on here. I don't think it's any one thing. Like a lot of cases don't have this many things happening with them. Well, right. But also most of the time, okay. And and I'm not making any implication here specifically towards the John Benny Ramsey case when I say this. However, most of the time, if this type of case happens, it doesn't have the opportunity to right, get right, poked right. and prodded like her case did, right? Correct. There are only so many leads that are going to take you to ultimately what ended up happening. This is not a situation where, I mean, granted, there's always the chance, right, that it is some, you know, random person who. You know, this was a one-off situation, and but but what's the likelihood of that? It's it's very very small, right? I mean, infant it 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 doesn't hardly even exist. It's so small. So you know, who did it? Well, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. It there's only so many uh, places that can lead there. And why isn't it solved today? Uh, it happened in, I, I always, I can't remember if it's 95 or 96. Oh, so her uh, her death occurred on December 26, 1996. 96, okay. And it was like the early morning hours. In fact, it happened. It'll be 27 years this year. Right, and so... You know, John Benet Ramsey would be um, 32 now. Yeah. Yep. Which is crazy to think about. Um, but her her brother, uh, he was nine at the time, right? Uh, yeah. Right. You're talking about Bert, uh, right? Right. Yes. I know that there were other siblings, but her brother that lived in the house with her um, that you said, you know, he even comes up as a suspect, right? Yes. Which, you know, pretty safe to say Burke didn't do it. And in the event he did do it, he's nine. He was nine. Yeah. I think it's pretty messed up to sort of uh, toss that allegation out there. I would agree with you, yeah. Because uh, it's it's very, very unlikely a nine-year-old used a garage, right? Yeah. You know, I, I would, I could drag you down this rabbit hole, but I'm not going to today. I will say this. If people wanted us to cover that one, I have a couple people I think we could reach out and talk to on that case that would have some insight. And if, if you guys want to hear more about her case and you message me, I will be glad to put together something on John Bonet's case. Yeah. But I've, I've got to know that people like still are doing that. Well, especially, I feel like people are always going to be interested in that case, especially 
if anything were to come to fruition from like the rumor mill that you're talking about, like where they're saying they've got some people of interest or whatever, I haven't seen anything like concrete come out of that. And I've said before on the show that I don't want to hear about how they're like going to be releasing information, right? Right. Just put out the information or don't. Release the information. Um, And I find I myself ignoring those types of preemptive, uh, you know, clickbait type articles because I will read it when like they're actually making a statement, not just like, you know, preemptively saying, you know, we might have something because like we could say that about every single case out there, right? We might have something on it someday, right? Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like John Bonet's case, because the the nature of the case uh, leads only to certain places and there was no resolution in the places that it leads, it could very well go unsolved forever. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with you there that I it's going to be really difficult to get a resolution this late in the game on a case like that. Has that age on it, that notoriety on it. I don't know that everybody will be completely happy with that. Like, no matter what the outcome is. There's been some really weird things in that case over the years. Well, it's had a life of its own. It really and has. Like, like I said before, the longer cases have the opportunity to be poked and prodded at. Right. The more, um, well, the more sensationalized, for sure, right, they become. Yeah. Uh, because John Bonet was on like the very, very, very beginning of like en- the internet, right? Yeah. Um, I actually remember, and I think we've said this before. I actually remember her being on like the, you know, tabloid uh, and magazine covers and pa- like paper versions of them, right? Oh yeah, I rem- and you could you could literally walk through, especially at Christmas time, you could walk through the checkout aisle when I was in college and there was always some slick glossy cover with her at, on it, with her either on the, the middle of it for years or every Christmas you would see her, one of her pageant photos in one of the insets, like new theories on Benet case. Right. And it was always her with like a face full of makeup mm-hmm. and it was like the most, like the the idea of this like mini woman, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what she looks like—a mini woman instead of like a you know five-year-old little girl. Uh, this mini woman who you know she had died. Um, it was so bizarre to me, um, but I I recall that uh, very vividly that she was everywhere and it was on paper. Well, because she was at the beginning of when we all started having internet access, like that case, it still managed to um, kind of sail on when the internet boom happened, right? Yeah. And so it just expanded everything, um, including John Benet's case was on the cusp of it to the extent that like it carried over, right? 
So it was one of the, it's one of the cases from the mid nineties that is still unsolved and still going strong. Yeah. It it is a wild one. I just was going to mention that in terms of like true crime things that happen around now. So so Today, wait, are we now the people who've said that they're, have we now said that they're going to say something, but they haven't said it yet? <laughs> yeah, this has been going on for like two years. Did we just become those people? <laughs> we mean? Just, well, because we're relaying, like I said, I didn't like it when they talk about possibly like preemptively saying that. And then we did it too. It's fine. You're being so self-aware at this point that the microphone has actually uh, muted you and it's decided that you're not allowed to talk anymore about this. So. I don't know what to tell you, Meg. I'm we're, sorry. Go ahead. We're nine episodes into Christmas coverage, or 10, or I don't know how many we're in. I do have a missing persons case today that I want to talk about. It ties into another one. You put this one on here. It's... Uh, an interesting NamUs case. It gets entered into NamUs June 17, 2009. It's from Etowah County, Alabama, specifically Gadsden, Alabama, although that's not exactly where we pick up with everything. Uh, missing person number for this case is 2353. And the name of this young lady is Peggy Reeves Mock, M-O-C-K. A couple of people have covered her over the years, and crimewatchers.net actually has... Quite a few of the articles uh, posted in a section about her. The like the the general setup here. She's thirty seven years old. She's a white female. When she goes missing, she's five foot three inches tall and around one hundred and fifteen pounds. She has strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, there's several pictures of her available on the internet, uh, and there is an also also an uh, Alabama Department of Public Safety um, like. PDF flyer that gets passed around. It's got a picture or two on there. It, there's not much to this case in terms of official statements. Uh, it starts off with the circumstances of her disappearance going kind of like this. On December 25th of 1992, Peggy Reeves Mock was last seen in Guntersville, Alabama. Peggy may be in the Jacksonville, Florida area. And that's, that's really all we get out of the name of side of things. The Boaz Police Department has an open missing persons case on her. Whether the contacts in there are uh, up to date was a little difficult for me to tell. The person may have retired out and they just may not have put a new name on it. But Faye Hester has it at the ALE, which is the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency, like the state agency. So when I pulled her up on Crime Watchers, I noticed a couple of different things that were that were pretty interesting, um, but I think I'm. I think I'm actually going to jump to the Charlie Project summary for just a second because it's on the Crime Watcher info. So Charlie Project has a few paragraphs about her that I thought were uh, worth chatting about. It's the same information I just gave you with the setup. She was 37 years old. If she were alive today, she'd be 68 years old. Her clothing description. They include a description of white boots. And then the associated vehicle that she had at the time was a dark blue 1983 Toyota Celica, but it has been accounted for. That's one of the things that's going to pop up here. So Peggy was last seen at a nightclub in Gadsden, Alabama, around midnight on December 25th, 1992. 
This has always struck me as strange with this case. Um, it's in Alabama, so there's several cases that follow down there. I have family from Alabama and Louisiana that I've always sort of found some interesting things about these cases because, you know, family ties. But I always thought it was weird that somebody was at a nightclub on Christmas or Christmas Eve. I don't, depending on how you read it, either first thing in the morning, Christmas Eve, she was at a nightclub or last thing in the evening, Christmas Eve, Christmas day, she's at a nightclub. And then it, <laughs> That's interesting because um, because she was 37, and I assume she didn't have children, right? Uh, I, I, haven't, so. I haven't seen that she had children. I'm not even sure if she was uh, married at the time. But I feel like it would actually be a good scene for, like, adults who don't necessarily have, you know, a whole lot of family stuff going on for Christmas. To you mean to out. sort of find someone in their, uh, in, that's at the same speed they're at or something? I well just, well, just because I feel like it would just be, like, not everybody has children to open Christmas gifts, right? Right. Not everybody, like, participates in all the, like, Christmassy stuff that, like, you and I associate Christmas with, right? Right. And so... Um, I can see where it's weird, but I can also see where like it's totally feasible that, you know, people in their 30s that aren't married, don't have kids and aren't close to their family, their parents or siblings or whatever would be like, let's go out. Let's have some drinks like that kind of thing on Christmas. Okay. well, I yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, So she's last seen at approximately midnight. And the way they have written it up is exactly what I'm saying. On December 25th, 1992. So she was at the Chestnut Station, which is a local lounge. And she was there with friends. They went over to the warehouse lounge. She left with a man and he brought her back and he left her there. But after that, she's never been heard from again. Now, that's 1992. A couple months later, in March of 1993, her boots and her purse are found at the site of the burned out mountaintop club in Rainbow City, Alabama. The purse had her identification, some prescription bottles for medication that's in her name, and some undergarments in it. The purse was near the former club's pool, which was stagnant and full of debris. Now, authorities did drain the pool, but they didn't find anything else. And then a couple more months later, Peggy's dark blue 1983 Toyota Celica and some personal items are found backed into a space in the parking lot of Forest River Apartments on George Wallace Drive near Gadsden, Alabama. Authorities stated that the car may have been parked at that location for months, possibly since Christmas and since Peggy's disappearance. The vehicle had been wiped down, so there were no fingerprints on the vehicle. Now, after Peggy's disappearance... Police get a letter from a woman. They get a letter that a woman had written to a third party about Peggy. The woman wrote that she had been sick since Peggy Mock came up missing and that Peggy went to Texas in the trunk of a car. Now, the woman who wrote the letter was murdered in November of 1994, and there are two men convicted of that crime. Authorities said they don't believe her homicide was connected to Mock's disappearance, and they aren't sure of the significance of her letter. Go ahead. 
I just wanted to point out, because um, I had to read this several times, um, the woman didn't send the letter to the police. Uh, right. She sent the letter to somebody, and I assume that person or someone else who read the letter provided it to the police, right? Correct. Because at first I was like, that's a really weird thing to sort of randomly say to the police, but that's not what happened, right? It was in the context of whatever else she was talking about. And we don't know the woman's name, but we do know she ended up being murdered. That's Correct. it. Right? Correct. The end results of this are Peggy, at the, at the time this all went down, she resided in what's known as Boaz, Alabama, B-O-A-Z. And Boaz police have this, as well as the Alabama Department of Public Safety or the state uh, law enforcement agency there, Alabama law enforcement. They are investigating her case. So Charlie Project wraps it up and says she may have traveled to the Jacksonville, Florida area sort of after she disappeared. Her case remains unsolved and it's being treated as a possible homicide. The Doe Network has her, the Huntsville Times has some info on her, the Gadsden Gadsden Times has some info on her. There are flyers about her out on the internet. Uh, Going back to uh, crimewatchers.net, which is this forum that sort of collects some of this stuff. Over the years, they have a couple of articles that pop up. Um, I saw there were some in 2020, but those articles are older. Now, someone on there that goes by the username Scorpio, they've dumped quite a bit of information in here. On January 27th of 1993, the Gadsden Times ran an article that you can find in the Google News Archive searches, and there's a photo of it attached over here. Here's all that says, uh, Boaz police looking for woman missing since Christmas Day. Uh, Peggy Reeves Mock 37, Brown Street, was last seen leaving Chestnut Station for the War Horse Lounge, which is Slightly different than the other uh, description, which was the warehouse lounge. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, you think it's just a typo? I'm just telling you that both of those appear. One is in the newspaper. One's in the Charlie Project description. This one says the War Horse Lounge. The other one says the Warehouse Lounge. It's a slightly different name. It's just a, I think it's a typo, yeah. Right, but um, it also, though... Okay, so... She went to the Chestnut Station with friends, then went to either the Warehouse or the War Horse, depending on where you see. But in Charlie Pro- Project, it says she left with a man and he brought her back. I, and that doesn't mention anything about her being brought back. That actually says the last time she was seen was leaving the Chestnut Station, right? Correct. Which is exactly what I wondered to begin with, like, who saw her come back, right? Well, the guy that didn't want to be interrogated further. Right. Uh, so He dropped her off in, in his mind. So, so this is January. So this is only a month after she goes missing. But this article says Miss Mock's family, including her mother with whom she lived, has not seen or heard from her since Christmas Day. Family members notified police after they did not hear from Mrs. Mock, and Captain Harvey Moore began trying to find the woman. Moore said so far all efforts to locate Mrs. Mock have been unsuccessful. Those efforts have included entering her in a crime computer as a missing person and sending teletypes to law enforcement agencies in five neighboring states. 
looking for her for her car, which is also missing. And then it describes her dark blue 1983 Toyota Celica and the tag number. Captain Moore said, while Mrs. Mock's family said she would sometimes stay away from home for a couple of days, she always let her family know where she was and when she would be back. I must, I must have followed up on at least 50 leads so far, said Moore, yet he has, he has not found any information about where Mrs. Mock is. Those leads included a rumor that she had gone to Texas and come to some type of harm there. Moore said he had teletyped Texas authorities asking for any information about a crime that might have involved someone fitting Mrs. Mock's description. Moore said he has received no information about a crime or other police contact with someone fitting her description. And then it's got sort of a, another rundown, which says she was wearing a white shirt, blue jeans, and white boots. And then it's the same description, five foot three, 111 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. They, you know, they follow up again. There is a brief article that says exactly what I just said, but points out that her clothing is found by the old Mountaintop Club which is a private club that had burned down. And again, this is in Rainbow City, so it's not exactly next door, but it's not super far away either. So that's March 27th, that article pops in. There's an article in the Gatson Times on March 29th that just repeats all of that again, but says that the clothing and the purse having been found were new clues that they were going to keep running with. They they sort of hint that there might be something more at this point on March 29th, but they don't tell us what it is. Now, March 31st, they mentioned that her boots are found or a pair of boots are found. I did not see if that was specifically confirmed uh, to be hers, but the boots were found in two different locations near where the purse was. So I assume that they were hers. Right. And she was last seen wearing white boots right. and they found white boots. Right. I assume somebody probably, because she was with some of her friends before whatever happened happened. So I presume that they were like, yeah, those are her boots. While not definitive, it's 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 good enough for for this story, right, at this point. Yeah. So in December 93, they run a one-year anniversary article. It doesn't say a whole lot of new things, but her mom talks in it. Um, they reference the fact that her car was found in May after the uh, the different items had been found at the at Mountaintop Club. And then over the over the years, they sort of it dwindles. You see a couple more articles here and there about her. Uh, people have gone through and put a lot of photos together from the scene and from all these different locations and some maps. This all took place in a relatively small area. It, the someone knows something definitely would would apply here, unless this is just a complete stranger. Which, you know, if you've got one witness, even if that witness turns up deceased, I think that you have something to go off of, wouldn't you? Sure, and uh, you know, this would be a prime case if they kept uh, some of the stuff that they found to test for DNA at this point. Um, I would agree with you. Yes. Because so more than likely, you know, earlier um, I, I talked briefly about like the dynamics of John Benet's case, right. Yeah. About, um, and, and I don't know if you do that or not, but I, I, I realize that it can be a little short sighted, but at the same time, 
it also helps to me sort of sort things through. Yeah. And so in this case, you know, you've got a, a missing 37 year old woman from, uh, she went missing Christmas night while she was out and you've got these sort of contradictions and well, I guess maybe not contradictions, but like people last saw her, uh, leaving to go somewhere with a guy. Right. Yeah. And then you've got clue. Do, do you have any idea when that club burnt down? Which one? The one where her stuff was recovered. Uh, so that club had been gone for several years by the time they found her okay. stuff. Yeah. I was, cause I was like, were they trying to make it look like she died there? Like what, what's happening? But if it was several years beforehand, uh, that wouldn't apply. But, and then you've got her vehicle being found in a parking lot of an apartment complex, right? Yeah. Okay. So where's the information about that? Right. Because there's no way it sat there for very long without somebody noticing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have like I've I've listened to some audio on her from other people chatting about her. Um, I'm highlighting her case because it's a Christmas case. I don't have a firm idea of what happened to her, but I have a feeling it ties back to her being at the club that night at all. Oh well, and my guess would be without any further information, which. You know, this is what we've got. And this case is from 1992, right? Um, is that right? Yeah, it's 92. Okay, 92. Um, that's 31 years, right? Yeah. Okay, I would say that, you know, something went wrong when she went off with this guy. Uh, that's and, a good possibility, yeah. And that's, you know, that's pretty much all there is to it now. I need to look um, at the found unidentified bodies in Texas, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that's going to be if, like, you got her boots and her car and all that stuff being found, like, really local to, to here. Then well, I, I don't but, know how you get to Texas from there. Well, just because of the the letter, the third-party letter. Yeah. That threw me off at first because I wasn't really paying attention to it. Well, like, I ran into some trouble with this too. Like, so her mom, she passes away in January of 2008. And in the obituary, says she is preceded in death by her husband, Charles Reeves, and her daughter, Peggy Mack, M A C K. So, well, you know, and, and, and other people are talking about this online. You can find a mention of that. I think Websleuth maybe mentioned it. I looked briefly there, but there wasn't a lot of extra information. But I went back looking for Peggy Reeves and Peggy Mack, Peggy Mock, just to see if there was anything extra out there. I, so I think she's dead. I think she's been dead since Christmas 92. Without question. I mean, uh, her car was left behind. And, and, and everything she had with her. And her uh, purse and uh, shoes and clothes, undergarments. And I mean, yes, yeah. she was, uh, she met her demise more than likely through foul play. Actually, there's no question it was foul play. It's not like she could have expired and somehow got her car one place and her purse and shoes another place. Somebody did that, right? Yeah. 
Um, the sad thing is whoever did that, they got away with it. Yeah, they, they seem to have gotten away with it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that it, this is not as small as area. This is not as small an area as I had thought it was going to be. Um, I tried to figure out if they would have the resources to like run stuff down if they had preserved evidence from the car or from when they got her belongings back. And I, I can't tell. There, there's only a couple of missing persons cases around here that sort of are troubling. And they're all in the same time period in the 90s. Um, when I looked at that, I, that's one of the reasons I decided like, okay, uh, we're definitely going to highlight this one. Because you had given me like quite, you did quite a bit of research in the people that disappear around Christmas and the different locations we're talking about. Um, she, she went on the definite list as soon as I saw that like, it's strange it's like people get really interested in the idea of her case and she is like, you know, a decently attractive young lady in the photographs and stuff. And she'll pop for a minute where people are convinced that they are going to figure it out. But then it's not like long threads are developed on crime watchers even, or over on web sleuths or Reddit. They basically just, they, they make a post and a couple people comment and then they sort of leave it alone. Right. And I think that this, that happens a lot in cases where, um, everyone's afraid to say like, well, clearly the guy she was last with did something to her. He either did something with her or he knows enough about what was going on that like, even if he wasn't like directly related, he knows what happened. Well, right. And because otherwise it wouldn't be a situation where, everybody else said the last time they saw her was when she was leaving with him. Right. Exactly. And so to me, I don't know. It's some sort of, it, it's something that, uh, I don't know, a barrier sort of where people don't want to say it. I don't know who the guy is. Somebody knows who the guy is. Right. No, yeah. He, uh, there was one forum that sort of mentioned the direction. I didn't go there today because I feel like, it doesn't matter who the guy is, really. It's just the the way that the whole case is set itself up, right? The guy could be anybody, but I feel pretty confident that they've got more to say, right? Well, that's that that was going to be my point. Is I do get the impression that the police have talked to him. Well, sure, and so then that makes you wonder. Well, what did he say that was convincing enough that police uh, cleared him or didn't pursue him further. And so that could be something that, like, for example, if anybody else saw her after he says he dropped her off, right? Yeah. Like anybody, anybody that's uh, like any person that's not, that wouldn't be doing it like as a favor for the guy, right? Her friends, if her friends saw her. But I feel like the newspaper would have said that, right? I think so. Because of the way there are details alluded to, the the discrepancy and saying like, oh, she was last seen leaving. And then he said he brought her back and dropped her off. But then like no corroboration is mentioned. I don't know what people are doing with that stuff. I don't know if they're, you know pushing it as far as they feel comfortable pushing it as far as saying like, hello, there's a problem here. Or if they're just genuinely, you know, just writing what is available. Right. I don't know. But to me, 
that's a huge red flag right there. And, you know, in like probably 99.5% of cases, uh, missing people, their disappearance has something to do with the last person they were seen with. That's just actually kind of common sense, right? The last person who sees them. That's the person who has the most information to glean from and probably the most to do with it. Every time. Right. Right. Every single time. And, you know, of course, the last person they're seen with or the last person that saw them, there's a little bit of a, in this case, the friend's last saw her and then the guy last saw her and it's two different things right yeah like it's it's almost so the guy says he dropped her back off the friend says she left with him is what it feels like it says to me in all of this that's what it says and if that's the case then you know where did she go um i will say somebody on reddit a queen of broken hearts or something like that was the name i looked at this but uh, it's just one of those weird things. They had put uh, the Sanibel Island Jane Doe, which is Namus UP 5316, up against her. And there are a lot of, like, sort of interesting similarities. They're both roughly the same height and weight. Uh, and I think they, they put it forward to Doe Network or they put it forward to Namus. I, uh, but... To my knowledge, this was like a year ago. The Doe Network and NamUs still have both Sanibel Island Jane Doe, and they have Peggy's case open. So I guess. Can you tell me what the unidentified number is again? Five three one six. Is there a rule out in there that you can see? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I wanted to look and see. Let's see. So the unidentified. Person 5316, they have 13 exclusions. It does not look like Peggy Reeves Mock is one of them. Uh, she has three unidentified person exclusions. And again, not 5316. Uh, 5316 is not ruled out. That is interesting. Wait a second. Oh, wait. October. Okay. Um, the timing is off on that. For me, but I did find that interesting. There's a lot. Um, if you go read about Sanibel Island, though, there's a lot of interesting information. But she was found in October of 95, floating in the Pine Island Sound, which is off the west coast of Florida. And she was tucked in a sleeping bag and stuffed into a sail bag from a boat. Right. Mm-hmm. She had, I, I think that, there was some conflict about her height, weight, etc. But she was wearing a maroon pullover hospital gown or scrubs that said Charleston, South Carolina VA hospital on the back of it. And she had a left temporal craniotomy and a POTS fracture of her left leg. Those are pretty big deals for people that don't know, but she'd been deceased for some time. Um, she had multiple old f- fractures and other wounds I can't see how you make up for those two years uh, and get this to be the dough, but I guess, you know, trafficking or other things are possible. She, uh, not, and I don't mean any offense by this, um, but 37 would be a little bit old for trafficking. 
Normally, I would say, okay, yes, and I would agree with you 100%. The thing is, if you get into areas with slimmer pickings for trafficking, the next thing after the age is attractiveness and petiteness for ter in terms of like potential trafficking victims. The smaller a person is, and if she's 5'3", 100 pounds, then or 115 pounds, she's right in line with what could potentially pass for a trafficking victim in certain areas. But I agree with you. For the most part, it's highly unlikely. I just saw this was out there and I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, what? the other thing, I don't know if you looked up Boaz, there's a couple other missing persons cases in that area within a couple of years of this. Uh, I think the latest one was maybe 98. Uh, yeah, she was 1998. So that's uh, Christy Lynn Gerard. Uh, that case is worth looking at as well. Was that in Boaz proper? Yeah, it was, a, it was in Boaz proper. Because, so in some of these cases, like, I don't, I don't really know anything about Alabama at all. But, like, it has Gadsden, Alabama as the location, and then the county is Etowah. Yeah. Right? And then yeah. in the circumstances of the disappearance, she was last seen in Gunnersville, Right. Yeah, and so you might be in Jacksonville, Florida, right? So all these places are listed. Yeah, and so if you leave her house and go south, you hit all these places along the way. That's what and, I figured. It's just when you don't know anything about an area, right? Well, her and, stuff that was found in Rainbow City would have been the furthest point from where she lived. Does that south? make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like so if you keep going south, you basically would hit the club. So you started her house, which is Boaz area. And so her mother, Naomi, she had lived in Boaz and Gadsden at different times. So that's how you, you know, you probably get these friends groups where you're in this area that's if from Boaz to Gadsden's probably 18 miles, maybe less. Right. From downtown to downtown. But everything that happens to her happens along the way. And then the car being found and the like the uh, the mountaintop club incident, that's all as you get further south away. Depending on the order of events, I think it would all be a southerly direction. So I was like, well, maybe that's how you end up with her being, you know, kept somewhere down there. And she ends up in this position where she ends up in the water off the west coast of Florida. But it doesn't. It's it's a it's a lot of work to do anything like that. I don't feel like that's her. I feel like that young lady came from a hospital in South Carolina. Either that or picked that up at a Goodwill. I mean, I guess that's possible. But she also had a cr craniotomy, right? Yeah. Now it doesn't give any indication of the. You know, if it seemed like it was a recent craniotomy or if it was one that had healed over well, but there's also no uh, information that Peggy had one, right? Had had a, uh, a craniotomy at any point in her life. And I was trying to think, like, what does that mean exactly? That's not a lobotomy, right? Because I don't look into this type of stuff. And so my thought was lobotomy, is it just to reduce pressure off the skull? Typically, it is a whole made... Okay, okay, so a craniectomy is when a section is removed. A craniotomy is when a hole is put in. The craniotomy 
and the scrubs went together for me. And I'm thinking, who got out of the the SCVA, right? Uh, out of the South Carolina Veterans Administration Hospital. Yes, that's what I th- that's what I thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm guessing that would be the case. We would know. I think we would know if Peggy had had a craniotomy. So uh, you brought up what's the difference between a crani- craniotomy and craniectomy? All right. So here's your basics. If it's an otomy, it is taken away and put back. If it's an ectomy, it's taken away and it's not put back. If it's a plasty, they're rebuilding what they took away. So craniotomy, craniectomy, cranioplasty. You learned something today. <laughs> um, well, and what would be the reason somebody would have that done? Any number of reasons. It could be she had a gunshot wound. It could be that she had a TBI. It could be that she had swelling on the brain. It could be that she had some kind of brain tumor and they removed a small piece and put it back while they were doing some kind of like uh, surgery. I mean, uh, treatment that they, that this is part of uh, a treatment. It's a major surgery, but it's a, like if it ends in craniotomy, that means a hole has been made, but it's been repaired. A craniectomy would mean a piece of her skull was removed, but it was not put back. Okay. So, anyways, I do have a um, – if you have anything more on this, I'm glad to talk about this girl because I think people should talk about her and the, the other cases like hers. Uh, she's a you know she's a Christmas missing person. Did you want to mention uh, Christy Lynn Gerard? I can if you want to. I was just saying that's a case that people can look up from the Boaz. Oh, okay. Area. I thought I cut you off from saying something about Oh, her. no, no. I was just, you know, I could make these cases go like all day because so every article that I read when I was reading about Peggy's case, so you like it starts out and it's just about Peggy from like 1992 the, so when the article started appearing in 93 all the way up to like almost 95. It's just about Peggy. But then after that, she sort of goes on this list. Like, here's the other notable missing persons. So when they mention her in 96 and 98, and then later, they talk about other missing persons in the area. And so Christy Lynn Gerard or Christy Morrison Gerard, or possibly even Christy Morrison, which is Morrison is her maiden name. She went missing in August of 1998 from Boaz, Alabama. She was 24, but, you know, also five foot five, 110 pounds. And the gist with her is she went missing from the vicinity of uh, Roden Avenue and U.S. Highway 431 at nine o'clock in the morning. She was with a male friend in a white pickup truck at the time that she had spent the previous night at his house. The friend says he dropped her off at her aunt's house, but none of the relatives at the aunt's house saw her. And Chrissy was divorced in 1998. She has two kids. Um, she frequently stayed with friends and relatives and kept in touch with her parents and always made sure that her kids were cared for. But after her parents didn't hear from her for a week or so, they reported her as a missing person. Um, according to family members, they've received information that she may have been a homicide victim, but her body has never been located and her case remains unsolved. Right. So I'm thinking this might be like an investigative procedure failure uh, in this area. I would not doubt that at all. Uh, just because, again, um, you've got somebody dropping somebody else off, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, 
it, once that ha- happening once is one thing, but like I said, this is a small area. Well, to me, uh, I, I just I feel like I, I don't know if they've done further. Uh, you know, if they've gathered further information to corroborate what they're saying, it seems like what they've alluded to elsewhere. Like, for example, here, none of her relatives saw her there, right? Exactly. That's alluding to the fact that, like, we don't believe him. And just like, you know, with Peggy's case, her last place that she was seen was leaving with that guy unless you ask the guy, right? And then he dropped her off. And so to me, this is like a failure in uh, law enforcement's part of, you know, pushing an investigation, which, I mean, this is now, uh, Christy is six years after um, Peggy, right? Correct. And so it's still the 90s. We're not at the point where, like, uh, young women who go missing, uh, you know, they're still they're still a little bit by 98 where they say, well, she's 24. She doesn't have to come home if she doesn't want to, right? That kind of thing happening. But to me, uh, the fact that, I pointed out earlier that I didn't even make the connection with these two because Boaz is not in Peggy's um, name as profile at all. And so I didn't make that connection. And that's what I'm saying. Oh, I got you. So you're saying like the jurisdictional thing could be from, I have noticed there's a lot of misspellings around there. Did you look at that part at all? Yes. There's a lot of misspelling, a lot of them. There's also a very only a very small amount of attention to detail. But the only reason I ask if there were any other cases is I'm curious if the other cases with young women in their 20s having gone missing, if they were also dropped off and never seen. There was a recent case in that county, a girl named Jasmine Host went missing. Uh, But I don't, I think that was like one of those, the husband did it, but we don't, know how to prove it kind of cases uh, as far as the the towns so we have gaston well I, and again i can just look up alabama you're right i'm just saying like i didn't make the connection because of the different things listed um well, I, that's, I knew- it does cross county lines now that you said that i had to look it crosses so the first case is Etowah. The second case is Marshall. There's not that many people missing there anymore. You know, um, what concerns me the most is uh, the newspaper drawing inferences between these two girls. Right? And the police not? Well, no. I mean, they're drawing inferences as if, you know, there's some sort of serial crimes occurring here and it's not the last person they were with, right? It, it, that's true, yeah. And to me, that's ridiculous. Like, because I... Oh, can- I, I totally agree with you. I just didn't know... Okay, so what I ran into, like, because you asked, like, a pretty specific question. What Here's what I ran into. When I click on people's... I don't, like, it's not like I'm going real deep into their history... I was just going through, and in this case, I was clicking through the Crime Watch, uh, Crime Watchers right. on Peggy. All right. So what happened there was I made myself a little list of like newspaper articles. Right. Well, so you've got you've got Christy Gerard mentioned, 
and then you've got uh, Peggy, and they start to be mentioned in each other's articles. So that Wait, inference is being drawn. They're both missing girls, right? Yeah. So then we have Wanda Jean Mays. She pops up in there, but her case gets solved. So the way that Mays's case gets involved is, uh, it's like I said, November of 1995. So we're a couple of years removed. Uh, there's an article that pops up in the Gadsden Times, G-A-D-S-D-E-N Times. And it just says, police still seek clues on disappearances. The whereabouts of Peggy Reeves' mock remains a mystery. Almost three years after she disappeared, after spending Christmas evening out with friends in Gadsden. In the years since she was last seen, her purse, her boots, and her car have turned up, but no trace of the woman has been found. The investigation began after Mock's mother reported her to the Boaz police as a missing person. The 38-year-old was living with her mother in Boaz at the time she was last seen. Gadsden uh, police became involved in the investigation when it was determined she was last seen in Gadsden. On Christmas night, 1992, she had gone to the Chestnut Station, a local lounge, and spent time with friends there. She left there and went to the Warhorse Lounge, uh, according to Lieutenant Roger Bohannon, and left there with a man. He brought her back and let her out of the car. When he left her, she was all right. Um, and, you know, then it goes on to say, as far as police know, this is the last time anyone saw Mock. Bohannon said her purse was found near the swimming pool at the burned out mountaintop club or Brad's place at uh, Rainbow City. And it had, the it's the same description as before. They drained the pool, no evidence was found. Like in this, within the same article, there's an inset that said the discovery of Felisa uh, Dry's remains uh, this month ended one missing person's mystery, but at least two similar cases are still in limbo. Uh, both Peggy Reeves Mock of Gadsden and Wanda Mays, a Huntsville woman last seen in Guntersville, have been missing longer than uh, Dry had been before her remains were found in her wrecked car. So Felicia Dry is found November the 10th of 1995 in her wrecked car off of US 431. So she's one of those vehicle cases that ends up like in the woods. Wow. So she had been missing for a little while, but Mays comes up here. She disappeared from the Brown Creek subdivision home of her aunt and uncle in May of 1986. A window was broken in the room where she'd been sleeping. Her bloodstained nightgown was found on the ground between the house and then the pier extending into Lake Guntersville and a canoe that had a small amount of blood in it was found adrift in the lake. Her disappearance had uh, received some widespread attention back in 1986. It was the subject of a reenactment on Unsolved Mysteries. So that's one amaze. Right, and they subsequently found her. Wanda Mays was found? Yes, she was found in October of 2003. Um, a hiker searching for ginseng plants discovered human bones at the foot of a 150-foot drop-off cliff approximately 1.8 miles from her aunt and uncle's house. Okay. The remains were unidentified until 2008. When the FBI finally identified them uh, at their DNA lab in Quantico, Virginia. Okay. Uh, so in January of 08, uh, the remains that had been found in October of 03 were confirmed to match Wanda Jean Mays. 
And in the official statement that the Marshall County Police Sheriff Scott Walls uh, gave about the finding was that Mays' death had been ruled an accident. Got it. Um, there was no foul, foul play involved. And he believed that she had unintentionally fallen from the cliff where she was finally discovered, um, which is, you know, it's kind of crazy. But um, her one of her brothers said that she had frequent uh, unprovoked panic attacks. Is she the one that when they went back and reexamined the window glass, it wasn't that the house had been broken into, it was that the house broken had been broken out of. of. Okay. Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was part of it. But um, so that, um, and see in that case, until she was found and all that had been discovered, I would have totally like blamed the uncle or something, you know, like whoever was with her last. But in this case, she was like, I don't know if she'd been drinking or what, but she... Well, I've known you long enough. I don't know that I would say you would blame them, but that would be the person you'd want to investigate, wouldn't it? I, I wouldn't... You're right. I wouldn't have blamed him, but I would have thought to myself, well, this chick went to bed here, right? Yeah. Like, what happened to her? It's weird that she was just gone, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And to me, um, she could have saved... Well, and this is mean to say, she could have saved everybody some trouble by leaving a note, Right. I don't think that's mean to say it's, it's a practical application of something that a lot of people selfishly let go of. And I understand they're not in the right frame of mind to do it, but it would be helpful. Right. I think that, uh, so that, that disposes of that case. They ruled that an accidental fall. We've got a car accident. Um, and then is that it? Has everybody else been accounted for? Uh, we'll get Christy. Oh yeah. Christy. Um, Gerard. She's also last seen with a guy in a truck and never comes back. He says that he dropped her off and nobody saw her there. Right. So and we're so, back to that. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same guy. Right. Now, Correct. I also see where like a big deal has been made out of an accidental fall victim who was a missing person for a long time. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. And so I maybe can, they don't take it as seriously later. Well, they didn't find her till 2003, right? So 1986 to 2003, she was missing. And so I think that when the, you know, person who was last seen with the lady says, you know, I dropped her off, uh, the police must not be like pushing, right? That would be a good term for it. Yeah, pushing. Um, but I feel like that they kind of should push. You know, mid-90s, you're not going to have surveillance. You're not going to have cell phone data. You're not going to have a lot of things that are used now to establish things like that, right? Yeah. The fact that, like, no, you didn't drive back over there and no, you didn't drop her back off, right? Yeah. You know, that's one of the benefits we have now because there's a camera everywhere. Oh, I totally agree. It's weird because this case, as strange as it is, it actually ties in today's exoneration in a way. Okay, so we do have an exoneration for today. It's an old one. Not from Alabama. It is from Kentucky. This is uh, actually one of the most interesting places for me in terms of fictional crime. It, uh, the television show Justified mainly takes place 
in this area out in Harlan County, Kentucky. And that's where today's case takes place. This case is, okay, so 1925 is when the crime takes place. The conviction occurs in 1926, and there's a sentence of life. And then the exoneration occurs in 1927. The person that we're talking about is a 31-year-old Caucasian male, and there are contributing factors to the conviction that are perjury or false accusations. And we, you know, we kind of run a little long today, so I'm not going to spend forever on this, but I do want to talk about it because it's one of those cases that's like really odd. When a girl's body is found in a mine shaft near Coxton, Kentucky in October of 1925, the authorities claim that it was that of 14-year-old Mary Vickery, who had disappeared two months prior. In March of 1926, Condi Dabney, a married father of two and a former miner who had forsaken that occupation to become a cab driver shortly before Vickery disappeared, was indicted for her murder. The charges stemmed from allegations made by another girl named Marie Jackson, who came forward six months after the crime, claiming to have been an eyewitness to the murder. The morning of the purported crime, Marie Jackson said that she and Mary Vickery had hailed Dabney's cab. The three went to a restaurant and a little later to a secluded area where Dabney made sexual advances towards Mary Vickery. When Vickery protested, Dabney struck her with a stick and she fell to the ground. Jackson tried to hide, but Dabney found her. He forced her to accompany him to the mine where they dumped Vickery's body. Jackson had not come forward earlier, she said, because Dabney threatened to burn her at the stake or to have a friend do that if she told anyone about the crime. The prosecution's case was not strong. At Dabney's trial, which occurred less than a month after his indictment, five witnesses substantially contradicted Jackson regarding the time of the alleged crime. Jackson claimed to have been with Vickery and Dabney from 7 o'clock a.m. until dark, but three friends of Vickery's claimed to have been with her during the afternoon. The friends said a man named William Middleton had given them and Vickery a ride that afternoon, and their account was corroborated by the mother of, the two, of two of the girls and by William Middleton. The identification of the body also was dubious. It was too badly decomposed for anyone to identify it by appearance, and the defense insisted that the decomposition was too extensive for the body to be that of someone who had been dead only a little more than a month. A ring and stocking that the prosecution claimed had been found with the body were identified as Mary Vickery's by her father, but his testimony was impeached because he did not attend the funeral. On cross-examination, he acknowledged that after viewing the body, he had not been perfectly sure it was his daughter's. Moreover, although the father claimed the hair matched Mary Vickery's hair, which was light, two other witnesses who had seen the body claimed the hair was dark. Exhumation could have resolved the issue, but that apparently was not suggested. To bolster the weak prosecution case, a jailhouse informant was called to the stand. His name was Claude Scott, and he was an acquaintance of Marie Jackson. Scott claimed that Dabney had offered him $15 to falsely testify that Jackson had had admitted making up the murder tale. It was not established whether the prosecution rewarded Scott for his testimony. Dabney took the stand in his own defense. 
He said he had no recollection of ever having had Mary Vickery in his cab, although Marie Jackson had been a customer on several occasions. Despite the conflicting evidence, the jury convicted Dabney on March 31st, 1926, and the judge sentenced them to life at hard labor. Just a few days short of a year later, while Dabney's appeal was pending, a police officer in Williamsburg, Kentucky, some 85 miles west of Coxton, happened to notice the name Mary Vickery on a hotel register. Because the name seemed familiar, he spoke with her and soon learned that she was the person Dabney had been convicted of killing. She said she had run away the year before because she wasn't getting along with her stepmother. Vickery said she did not even know Marie Jackson, who had supposedly concocted the story to collect a $500 reward posted by Mary Vickery's father. Governor W.J. Fields pardoned Condi Dabney on March 22, 1927. Five days later, Jackson was convicted of perjury. The body from the mine was apparently never identified. Uh, This comes from Rob Warden at the National uh, Registration of Exonerations. What do you think of this one? Um, I thought, well, the saddest part of this to me is that the body was never identified. Yeah, that's Um, my thought, too. And then uh, the other part, so this was uh, this was Kentucky, 1925, 26, into 27, when he finally is exonerated. So the 20s, um, we had talked about a case in North Carolina that was also in the 20s, right? And in that case, um, it, there were some really clear differences, just like here in sort of how the court process worked, right? And because here you've got a situation where, um, well, they did end up charging her with perjury, which is actually quite impressive. But um, because typically that, you don't ever hear about that happening, right? But there was substantial conflicting evidence, right? Even to the point where it wasn't just like the defendant um, making his own claims, it was people associated with the uh, purported victim saying, well, wait a second, the witnesses, and that was Marie Jackson, what she's saying couldn't have happened because we were with we were with Mary Vickery the afternoon that she went missing, and there's no way she was with Marie Jackson and Condi Dabney all of that time, right? And so Correct. to me, that was pretty, that's pretty substantial when you've got, friends or associates or whatever you want to call them of the victim saying, yeah, that doesn't seem right. I wonder, of course, you know, even in the twenties, it was the jury's, uh, it was their place to, to weight the credibility of the witnesses presented to them. Right. And so it seems odd that uh, unbiased or even victim bias, which we find out later she's not a victim, but for the, you know, while the case is going on, victim biased witnesses weren't given more weight. And it would be interesting to know why that was. Of course, you know, we, nobody from this case is still around, but I would wonder what exactly it was that made them believe Marie Jackson, who was lying to get reward right. over these other people who had, you know, really no vested interest. In fact, they would have 
more of an interest in getting him convicted if they were associated with the victim. I, I don't know if they were friends or not, right? But they were hanging out together. So it seems like that would have given their testimony substantial more weight. And I would love to know if there was some part of the case that made that not happen. Looking this up in hindsight, it's interesting because people started reporting on this about three years after it happened. So there's a lot of articles on it, but they are not very specific as to what was happening, like sort of in situ, like at the trial while it was going on. Right, because this what probably wasn't even a case until after like everybody found out that a witness lied, a man got sent to life um, at hard labor, and then the victim was alive. Yeah, a lot. So, so there are articles written about this, like as it's going along before he gets convicted. But the bulk of the, like you said, the bulk of the articles are 1927 and after, after he's been cleared and there's this whole perjury situation. That's when it really starts being popular, so to speak. Well, sure, because that is, you know, that is the story, really, you know, unfortunately. I also wondered, um, just sort of in the write-up, it said that Mary Vickery's father had identified a ring and a stocking Yeah. on the victim. He said, yes, this is my daughter's, but his testimony was impeached because he did not attend the funeral. Do you have uh, can you explain that to me? I thought the idea was he hadn't seen the stocking or the ring, but I am not really sure what they mean there. He okay. never gets accused of perjury in this case. It falls on Maria Jackson. Right. Well, and it, yeah, no. And I don't think that would go more towards the identification as opposed to, um, you know, getting this man convicted. Right. Yes. And so, you know, I just, I, that kind of bothered me because I'm like, well, how would him not attending the funeral impeach his testimony unless they were saying that if he had actually believed it was his daughter, he would have went to the funeral. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And to me, that would be like a bigger deal. That would, that shouldn't just be like impeaching testimony. <laughs> that should be like, you know, rethinking the case. Okay. I went on and I found an old setup here from the Arizona Journal of Law where they talk about this case. And it's in the footnotes and you kind of have to dig to, to find the reference. But so I'm going to give you sort of a piece of this. It appears from page 329 on in Perjury and Anthology. Uh, the section in here is Justice in America, Section 7. And it says, in the 1930s, Edwin Burchard wrote Convicting the Innocent, a classic study of injustice in the criminal courts. Willful perjury was a substantial factor in 19 of the 65 cases in his collection. Two of my favorites are the bizarre Kentucky case of Condi Dabney and the even more remarkable Mississippi case of Thomas Gunter. Dabney was convicted of murdering a person who later turned out very much alive, his conviction being more or less attributable to the revenge testimony of a disturbed young woman. Uh, Thomas Gunter, known as Pop, was convicted of murdering his no-account son-in-law on the perjured testimony of his daughter, Pearl, and granddaughter, Dorothy Louise. Pearl had actually done the killing, and she had coached Dorothy Louise to play a supporting role. Uh, children do lie from time to time, contrary to the assertions of an army of social workers and pop psychologists. The, the case was weird and it also strangely 
contemporary. It is suspiciously like the sensational burning bed battered spouse stories of the 70s and 80s with a couple of twists. But let's get to the Dabney case, which is uh, rather straightforward by comparison. So this summary here is like, is uh, it's pulled with a bunch of reference points in here. So I'm going to, I'm going to use it. In January of 1925, Condi Dabney left his family in Coal Creek, Tennessee for a job mining coal in Coxton, Kentucky. After six months or so in the mines, Dabney bought an old car and started a taxi service. His life as an entrepreneur was to be cut short by a combination of panic in the community and stories told by yet another incarnation of Potiphar's wife, which is a story about, are you familiar with that story? No, I'm not. Talks about the railroading of Joseph and uh, Soren Vist. Uh, we may bring that up at another time, so I'm not going to bring it up here. But someone gets executed for the murder of a handyman based on essentially false testimony. Just keep that in mind. Okay. The, pan- the panic began shortly after Dabney's arrival in Coxton when a 16 year old girl disappeared. After he had started his taxi service, three more women disappeared, two of them were married. The third was 14-year-old Mary Vickery. Two men, William Middleton and Condi Dabney, were suspected in the case of Mary Vickery on the strength of reports that they had been seen driving Mary around. However, the grand jury failed to indict either man. That fall, Dabney returned to Cold Creek, Tennessee, after work in the mines there picked up again. Enter U.S. Marshal Adrian Metcalf, who was pursuing a tip that there was a mine shaft still hidden in Bugger Hollow near Ivy Hill, not far from Coxton. His search led him to some clumsily concealed clothing and, after some digging, the body of a female. Now, as one might suspect, the forensic scientists were, for forensic sciences were somewhat limited in and around Coxton, Kentucky, circa 1925. The authorities assumed the body was Mary Vickery's, and the father identified remains, mainly because of a ring supposedly found at the scene. The ring, covered with flesh, had been proffered on a stick to Mr. Victory, and he thought it looked like the ring he had bought Mary for her birthday. He also recognized an L-shaped repair in a stocking found at the scene, as Mary had had a similarly repaired stocking. And he thought he could identify hair found with the body as being, quote, like Mary's hair. Ultimately, the police arrest Abney and indict him on the strength of information provided by Marie Jackson who was a woman in her mid-twenties, whom Dabney admitted having dates with while he was running his taxi service in and around Heartland. Dabney maintained throughout the ordeal that Jackson swore against him because he would not leave his wife and go with her. Much later, after his vindication, Dabney's wife provided some corroboration. I saw a letter my husband received from a woman who signed her initials MJ and asked my husband to come back to Harlan with her, said Mrs. Dabney. He denied at the time that he knew who the woman was. And at trial, Marie Jackson testified that Dabney drove her and Mary Vickery to the old mine site and requested that Marie leave. From some distance, Marie watched as Dabney assaulted Mary Vickery, clubbed her to death, and then dumped her body in the mine shaft. Several other women supported this testimony, testifying that they had seen Mary Vickery in Dabney's cab on the day of her disappearance. On March 31st, 1926, Dabney was convicted and sentenced to life at hard labor. Dabney's appeal was still pending when a year later, patrolman George Davis saw the name Mary Vickery pinned in a hotel register in Williamsburg, Kentucky. He alerted Sheriff Ward, who took the girl to her father and stepmother for identification. Mary Vickery was indeed alive and well and back from, quote, 
just traveling around. She had apparently run off, having had having been unable to get along with her stepmother. During the investigation that led up to Dabney's arrest and trial, such discord had been denied by Mr. Vickery. She had been driven to Harlan by a taxi driver who must have been Berea, and then to Mount Vernon, where she worked as a domestic. At one point, she said she spent some time at the home of T.J. Nicely, the county clerk of Rockcastle County. Apparently, she had been using the name Rose Farmer. I heard that they convicted Dabney and that he was supposed to have killed me, she told the authorities. When she was asked why she didn't come forward, she said, I just never thought of doing that. The prosecutor in Dabney's case, G.J. Jarvis, launched a detailed investigation and joined Dabney's defense attorney, C.G. Rawlings, in requesting a pardon from Governor Fields. Marie Jackson was unable to even identify Mary Vickery when she was brought in front of her. She then concocted another tale, which tied into the killing of two other women and the disappearance of three local men. Roxy Baker had been killed in Harlan on February 22, 1925. She had been thrown from a car. When a grand jury met to investigate Roxy's death, three young men disappeared from Harlan, and it was suspected that they were involved in Roxy's death. Roxy had been a friend of Miss Leela Cole, who had disappeared from Harlan in December of 1925. By now, it had been suspected that the bones found in the mine shaft were actually those of Leela Cole. Marie Jackson told the prosecutor that a miner by the name of Charlie Williams had been involved with Leela Cole, who was estranged from her husband, and that Mrs. Cole and Williams were the principals in the Dabnick case and that Williams later murdered Cole and threw her body in the mine. Jackson claimed that she had witnessed the disposal of the body, and that Williams had given her $50 to keep quiet. Ironically, Williams had been a suspect in the Dabney case, but had been released when Marie Jackson said she could not recognize him. She repudiated this story almost immediately and was unable to pick out Williams from a lineup. By this time, it was clear she was a pathological liar and that she had been motivated throughout by a desire to hurt Dabney and a desire to collect a $500 reward that had been offered in the Vickery matter. Governor Fields released Condi Dabney from jail. On March 26, Mary Vickery, the girl who had returned from the dead, was wed in Harlan. So there was a happy ending for everyone except Marie Jackson. She was prosecuted for false swearing. Without going into the rest of that, that's sort of the rundown. And it, this is cited kind of to Helen back in terms of a lot of people sat down and put these references together where this all came from, from the court records and from the local papers at the time. Does that give you a little more window into what happened? I know it doesn't tell you why he was uh, impeached with testimony about him not being at the funeral. It does. Yeah, no, that was good. That was more information. Um but they did. Uh, you said Leela Cole. Did they didn't make a confirmation that that was her? There's no confirmation made, but Leela Cole is no longer missing, and that body is no longer unidentified. So I don't know if it was just it was ruled out, or if it was just I don't know. Right. Um, well, and you know, I think as far as Namus goes, um, you know, you're looking at like. Five people missing uh, before 1925 or something like that. Maybe, yeah. It, it's not a lot there, right? Um, this type of thing, though, uh, and and they're all guys too, by the way. Um, oh, I believe that. Yeah. And so you know that gives you a little bit of insight into 
what's going on. And, you know, I'm sure there's, there's files that haven't transferred, right. Yeah. Um, with regard to, you know, getting NamUs set up. I, and I believe the influx of NamUs, it started in like 08, right? Yeah. It happened in sort of two phases, but yes, that is when the bulk of information went in. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it, it's not that odd that earlier cases aren't in there, right? Not to me anyway. I feel like they're doing the best they can just to keep it up to date with cases that are currently happening. You know, since we've started uh, the podcast, then cases have gone up by, I would say, about 5,000 missing people. That's probably that right? about, that sounds about right. The number and fluctuates, I, but yeah, that, that sounds right. And I'm curious to know um, if more old records have been entered. It's, it's a mix of the, okay, so it's a mix of three things. One is sort of archival records going in. Right, me, which is me. what I was wondering, yeah. So that's, that's about, I'd say, a third to half. Okay. So then you have the fact that, like, you, you referenced us doing this. We've been doing this for roughly five years. You have the fact that like five years passed and certain numbers of missing persons make it go up a little bit. And those are new missing persons cases. Okay. And I really haven't kept like a sort of, you know, running tally. I just remember like what it was at some point and then like what it is now. Right. Yeah. It, it's very strange. Like I think the, the regular number when we started doing all this and like putting it out to the world, it, it would it would rest between like 14 and a half and 16,000 people. And I think okay. now if you went on there and just like glanced at it today, it's probably something like uh, 23 or 24,000. Right. Well, and I was thinking it was like 17 or 18,000 and that it was up to, I, I know that right now today it's 23,654 cause I have it open. Okay. Um, and uh, I just happened to have it open, but um, I, so that's kind of where I was going with that. I guess really I could look. So um, there's really old cases that go in. There's sort of like jurisdictions coming online with NamUs. And right. so now all of their missing persons go in there. Now there's a couple of them. And you and I've looked at these jurisdictions over time. There's a couple of them that they're, numbers go up because they have ongoing problems with populations that in other jurisdictions would be classified as runaways. Right. And we've seen that. Um, yeah. There's multiple places where you'll find like a, a large percentage of group homes in a state and you'll see like a lot of runaways that go in here and never come out. Even though if you looked at it, they really just went back to their biological families or out on their own. Um, right. And then you have the fact that when those people come online, even though they're putting in the way back cases, so the cases that have like a history that's you know much further back than the start of NamUs, but they also are contributing. In, like once they come online, they're putting their ongoing cases in there, and that's generally at the state level. Like a lot of times, you see state law enforcement level is what changes it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems like. Um I'm actually pretty sure at some point during the case, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be like 
Right, the second. But at some point, all the missing people in NamUs had law enforcement involved. Yes, yeah, yeah. At some point, somebody filed a report, and they try and it. You will occasionally find a missing person who only has a name as contact. It's very rare. Usually, it's a local. Frequently, it is a state level law enforcement agency involved as a point of contact. Then there's a nameless point of contact. Uh, and on about, about 20% of missing people in there, they will actually have a federal contact, uh, whether it's l- like law enforcement in terms of the FBI, DOJ type contact, or it's a contact because it happened in a way that it's affiliated with either a military installation or tribal land or some other thing that triggers it having a federal point of contact. Does that make sense? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you have anything else to say about Condi Dabney? No, I'm glad that that was uh, resolved. I'm not sure. I'm not sure your um, addendum there, your footnote, like that actually made it more intriguing to me. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I was didn't like super clear anything up, but that that's interesting, right? Well, it was so that footnote is well referenced and it's included in this, like yeah, to be convicted of uh, a murder of a girl that's very much alive is a quirky thing. I, I don't have anything else about this one. Um, I I just found that interesting. And I wanted to include it in the holiday episodes where I had an opportunity to to do that. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors.
If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go, they're perfect for travel, and anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee. But the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently. But one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. 
He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but It's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. 
I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylist accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS. <laughs> 